Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. Let's get to it. As of 1968, was anybody born at that time? <laughs> Nobody here. Uh, as of 1968, there were 5,255 known manuscripts. That's important. Now, if you think about all the things we've been talking about, all the argument over manuscripts, um, you know, what, what is the evidence for one over the other? The overwhelming majority of these belong to the Byzantine text. It, it's so overwhelming that it's, it's not even fair at this point. It makes no sense to even look in the other direction. Now, the earliest extant manuscripts. What does extant mean? They were called papyri. Can anybody guess why? What were they made of? Papyrus. All that papyrus that you have growing around in these, these swamps. You could be making paper out of them. <laughs> now they make... They already make like mats and, and roofs and things like that. They, they use them. But um, the people who lived along the Nile River for centuries used it to make paper. And it was very expensive and very hard to get. And so the earliest of these manuscripts are papyri. It was given this name because uh, uh, they were written on papyrus. Throughout history, people groups who live along the Nile River have produced these plants. At least 81 of these have been discovered so there are at least 81 of these documents, and the most notable of them, there are two that are, that are really uh, kind of famous in the world of manuscripts. One is called the Chester B.T. papyri, and then the other is the Bodmer 
papyri. As of 1968, there were 5,255 manuscripts in existence. Uh, the overwhelming majority of them belong to the Byzantine line of manuscripts. And then the, the, uh, some of the notable ones, the earliest ones, are, are called papyri. Two notable texts amongst those papyri are the Chester Beatty papyri and the Bodmer papyri. It's just a cool word to say. Try it. Everybody say it with me. Papyri. Papyri. All right. All right. The majority of the remainder of the New Testament manuscripts were written on vellum. Who knows what vellum is? No. Anybody? Vellum is leather. What is leather made of? Animal skin. So they would make this, 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 these vellum manuscripts out of leather, essentially, and um, made out of various animal skins. Now, the earliest of the vellum manuscripts were written in unseal. What does that mean? Anybody remember? What is an un- unseal manuscript? An unseal is a majuscule. What is a majuscule? <laughs> can always count on gross. So an unseal is the same thing as a majuscule, and that means that it's a manuscript written in all caps. Remember that? We talked about that. What's the opposite of a majuscule? Huh? A minuscule. So a majuscule is all capital letters, and minuscule is all lowercase letters. Unseal and, minu- and majuscules, they, they have a close relationship. Um, the three oldest complete or nearly complete unsealed manuscripts are B. Now, this is, the, this is the name of the manuscript. It's called B. So in the world of manuscripts, if you were to talk about a manuscript named B, everybody would know what you were talking about. Now, it, it is... It is co- now these are the oldest of these manuscripts, okay? Tell me if you notice a problem with them. This is Vaticanus. You might notice an issue there. The next one is called Aleph. That's the name of it. And it is its relationship is tell me if you see an issue here, Sinaiticus. Sinai. Where is Mount Sinai as far as we know? Egypt. What's the problem with anything coming out of Egypt? Specifically Alexandria. It is corrupt. But what about this one? The next one is called A. And it is Alexandrinus. See where these manuscripts come from? Now, this is where the argument comes in. See, these are the oldest vellum manuscripts in existence. So that means that they must be correct because they're the oldest. Well, why didn't the oldest of the Antioch line of manuscripts continue to exist? Anybody remember? Because they were being used. They got worn out. (laughs) 
So you don't have an old copy because people were using them. Especially uh, this one, I believe this one, actually I think all three, but uh, I believe this one was found. This is the one that was found in the trash at the foot of Mount Sinai (laughs) in a monastery, and they were using it to start fires. Now, why would they do that? Because it's no good. And they knew that. But if you want to make yourself rich, and you can find a really old document and claim it to be an elite copy of the Word of God, there you go. Here's your opportunity. And so that's what a man named... Actually, okay, so here we go. Codex B was written about the middle of the 4th century. It, it is the property of the Vatican Library at Rome. So this belongs to the Vatican in Rome. All right? Um, It came to be listed in their catalog in 1475. So that's um, that's when it that's when it showed up on their radar. Uh, They even believe they had it much longer than that. But the first time it was documented to have been there was 1475. Now, Codex Aleph, when we were just talking about it was discovered by a man with a really cool name. Tischendorf. He was an explorer, and he was doing some work on behalf of the Tsar of Russia. Before Russia had a leader like Putin to dominate the world, they had czars. They had a different government system. So the the, the czarist system collapsed when the the communist revolution came in, and, and Lenin brought in, ushered in communist Russia. He took over Russia after... Lenin was Stalin. Stalin led for a long time until he, he mysteriously passed away. A lot of people believe his, his best men helped him <laughs> to pass away. But there's no proof, and they're not going to say if they did. And uh, So he died, and then over the, the course of history, there was this battle between America and Russia, and, and more specifically at that time, the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union collapsed, and America won. And so instead of celebrating our, our, our win, we decided to take on communism. So let's see how it goes for us. Um, until that time, they had czars. And Tischendorf was working on behalf of the czar of Russia. And in 1859, he found Codex Aleph in the trash at the monastery of St. Catherine on Mount Sinai. Tischendorf persuaded the monks with money. What, is, what does a monk need with money? Where is he going to spend it? If he's true to what he, what he says he believes, then he's not leaving the monastery. And he's supposed to live this, this difficult life of, of extreme discipline. I, I don't know if I told you in this class, but I went to, I went to a couple of these monasteries when I lived in Egypt. And, um, and I was witnessing to a priest... And uh, we, we had a very lively conversation. And, and it, actually, I was walking around the monastery by myself. And uh, he said, why don't you join us? He had this family that he was giving a tour. I said, no, you really don't want me to join you. I appreciate it, though. He said, no, no, you come join us. And the family was like, no, no, come. I was like, no, you really don't want me to, to join you. And uh, they insisted, so I joined them. And, um, and I proved that to be right. They did not want me to join them. And so uh, me and the priest began talking. And then I began witnessing to him, 
And uh, we started going at it on, on doctrine, and he believed what, you know, the, the Coptic church in Egypt is just another branch of Roman Catholicism or the Greek Orthodox Church or the Russian Orthodox Church. It's all, it's all different flavors of the same devil, if you could put it that way. And, um, and so he, he, uh, I'm, ta- I'm witnessing to this guy. I'm talking to him. And I was like, so you believe baptism is a means of salvation? He said, yeah. I said, what? you live in the desert, like, literally in the desert. And you're not supposed to leave your monastery. So what happens if you don't have water and you need to save somebody? And you know, he, he, so he turns to me and he says, we would use sand. God would understand. <laughs> so you just, you're just going to make stuff up now, right? So, like, so you can't have water. I was like, what, what if there's a pile of cow manure? Would you, like, would you use that? I mean, would God understand? I was like, you're just going to make stuff up. And, so, and then I said, well, let, let me ask you this one, one, one last question. I said, so the Bible says we are to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. How are you doing that from this monastery? And I promise you, this man looked at me. This was probably, this was 2011, 2012. He looked at me dead in my eyes and he said, we have a website. (laughs) I was like, all right. So that's who Tischendorf is buying these manuscripts from, (laughs) people with that mentality. And, uh, And people with that mentality, okay, now you think about the way that man thinks, and they knew enough to throw this in the trash. <laughs> they knew enough to say, oh, "This is this is garbage. Just throw it in the trash, and when we need to make a fire, we'll pull, we'll tear some out of it and and uh, and, and make a fire." And and so Tischendorf comes around and he he takes a tour of the monastery, and he doesn't do what I do. Um, he wants to buy their trash. I want to win souls to Christ. <laughs> Very different objectives. And so in 1933, uh, the British Museum purchased the manuscripts from Russia. It is considered to have been written in the second half of the fourth century. So it's, uh, it's pretty old. Now, Codex A was given to the King of England in 1627. If this manuscript, Codex A, which is Alexandri- Alexandrian, was given to the king of England in 1627, then who didn't have access to it in 1611? The King James translators who translated the Bible in 1611. So you've got to think about this in context of, of, of the history of what we're talking about. It was given to him by Cyril Luker. That's another good name. I'm telling you, if anybody's getting ready to have babies, Cyril Luker. Now, nobody else has that name. <laughs> you would be the only one. Bambali Cyril Luker. <laughs> Amen. All right, so um, he, he was the patriarch of Constantinople. Now, what's interesting about Constantinople? What empire was Constantinople under? The Byzantine Empire. But this is an Alexandrian text, so we can't, we don't want to conflate the two. So it is believed to have been written the first half of the fifth century. Now, around the beginning of the ninth century, minuscule handwriting began to be used. What is minuscule handwriting? All lowercase. 
the manuscript would be full, edge to edge. And, and if you saw some of the examples in the WhatsApp group, that still doesn't illustrate it well enough. I mean, imagine a manuscript that you got to roll up or a scroll or something of that sort and edge to edge, all the way down, handwritten in, in lowercase letters with no spaces, no punctuation, nothing, just the whole book of John. <laughs> that would not be fun to have to work with. So praise the Lord for what we have. Now, minuscule handwriting is all lowercase or small letters, 2,764 minuscules have been cataloged. All right, that means that, that they have been identified, they, they know something about their historical background, they may even have been reviewed, and they, they have been proven to be authentic as best they can tell. 2,764. They date from the 9th century to the 16th century. Now, if we're going off of this, then you see where the majority of those manuscripts come from. Is it, that, that's in relationship to this. That 5,255 5, of them, 2,764 are minuscules from the 9th century to the 16th century. So um, that, that's the, the bulk of what exists. Now, other than actual manuscripts, we, the, the, the Word of God, because people couldn't afford paper, they would put it on or in anything. Um, if they could find a broken piece of pot, they would write a verse on it or they would write a chapter on it if it was big enough and, and they could fit it on there. And so they would, they would take that pot and they would, the, the, the archaeologists have uncovered homes that had broken shards of pot sitting in people's homes and it had Bible verses written on it that match the Antioch text, that match, match, match the Word of God. And so they, they can take these and they can piece together you know, did John at this time have this verse? Well, here it is on somebody's wall. <laughs> How did it get there? You know, where did they get it from? They, they, they somehow got their hands on it and made their own copy of it. And then churches used what are called, and, and some churches still use something like this today, lectionaries. And a lectionary basically is like a, the equivalent of a modern day prayer book but it had Bible verses in it. So you, you, know, you, you didn't come to church and everybody, okay, everybody open your Bible. <laughs> like they're, they're, everybody doesn't have, nobody has a Bible. It only exists in these various manuscript forms and they can't show up to church and open the Word of God and, and turn to John chapter 4. <laughs> uh, okay, hold on, let me, <laughs> let me stretch out my manuscript and, and find it somewhere in here because there's no divisions. Like, do, you, you, do, you really, do you see how blessed you are? Like, we can sit in a church with the same word of God. Then I can say, turn to you know, Job 18 and everybody knows where to go <laughs> and, and can get there relatively quickly. And it's a tremendous blessing. So those are lectionaries. Uh, somewhere around 2,143 lectionaries exist. Now, why this is important because let's say you want to compare these manuscripts. All right. And you find this old lectionary. And you open that lectionary, and in that lectionary are chapters of books or portions of Scripture that would be, you know, uh, the church might have these books sitting in the pews or in the church, and they may call on someone, stand up and read 
you know, from this page. And they would read that verse and, and there might be a hymn along with it. And it's, that's the kind, kind of the idea. Well, they could take these ancient lectionaries and they could say, man, it says the same thing as the, the manuscripts. Nothing has changed. They, 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 they fit perfectly. They fall right in line. And so it's just further evidence that exists that point to you have the writings of the church fathers when they would write letters or they would, their sermons would be recorded and, you know, they would say, 1 John 5, 7 is not in the Bible. Well, why is this church father referring to it in his letter? <laughs> why did he quote it perfectly? And, and why is he teaching on it in one of his sermons, you know, from, from the third or fourth century? And so they can take the, all this evidence and it all compiles together and then they can check it against the manuscripts and they can tell this is Alexandrian in nature. This is Antiochian in nature. This is Byzantine. It, you know, we, we know where it fits and it proves that, that these, are, these are correct. It helps to add to the validity. It should strengthen your faith in the word of God. Uh, from 1550 to 1912, men began to catalog manuscripts. Now, that's, that's important. Any manuscript that had been discovered went through a process called cataloging. They would catalog it, and, uh, which meant they organized them and gave them identifying markers like B, Aleph, or A. So once it was cataloged, it would be given an identifying marker or a name, if you will, and, and now they could know how to refer to it. And then at some point, we're going to get to that. I don't want to get ahead of myself. So uh, by the time they were finished, 5,255 manuscripts had been cataloged and more have been discovered since that time. So I don't, I don't know what the current number is, but from 1550 to 1912, by the time we get to 1968, is that what I said, 1968, there are 5,255 manuscripts in existence. No other document in the entire world has that much support for its existence and its validity. You can't find that for any other important document anywhere in the world. You know, Beowulf, <laughs> the story, was not being spread across the entire world. Um, you know, Plato and Aristotle would be the closest thing we have to something like this because they, they were... Uh, they were high-level philosophers. Their writings were highly sought after, but, but they have nowhere near the support that the King James Bible has for its existence, its history, its lineage, it, you know, the uh, texts that, that exist that prove what it says. There's nowhere near the support that, that, that this book has. It's incredible. Now, after cataloging, the, the manuscripts would be collated, by collating, they are comparing the text to related manuscripts already in their possession. When the manuscript is discovered and cataloged, it must be printed or published some way so that people can get their hands on it. That's As they're developing the process of textual criticism, this is part of the process. Somebody discovers an ancient manuscript, it's taken somewhere safe where it can be preserved and kept, kept safe, and then... Someone goes through the, 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 the very difficult process of determining what it says, publishing it as best they can, exactly as it is, and making that widely available for people to get their hands on. So then all the scholars around the world can, can go look at it and they can start comparing it and finding out, you know, when, where, where did this come from? When did it exist? What's its relationship to 
the Byzantine text or to the Alexandrian text or, you know, that, that, that they start trying to compile that type of information. After printing, it can then be collated or compared to other related manuscripts. At this time, any variance will be noted if there is any. Uh, this is all related to the linguistic science known as textual criticism. And textual criticism in terms of the Word of God is both good and bad. If it's not done from a godly, uh, Bible-believing perspective, it, it, what, it, what it will do is give unbelievers what they think they're looking for. It will allow you to make the Word of God subject to your opinion, and then when you decide in your opinion, not based on any real facts or objective data, that you don't like the Word of God, then you can just throw it aside. You can say, well, I'm a textual critic, I, I'm a scholar, and I don't agree with this text, so I don't believe in it. Okay, well, let me know how it goes when you lift up your eyes in hell being in torment, because you're going to believe it then. So... When you take men and you put them in this position of, as a textual critic, if they don't have, if they already have a predisposed idea, predisposition regarding the Word of God, well, they're going to look for things to validate their predisposition. And now you might say the same about the man who believes the Word of God, but th this, is, this is where someone like John Bergen comes in. Okay? He had a, a predisposition to believe the Word of God. Erasmus is an even better example. Erasmus wasn't against the Word of God, but how did he handle 1 John 5, 7? He was very careful. He displayed a high level of integrity and intellectual honesty. So if you follow the process he went through and you're an honest person, in the end you would have to say, 1 John 5, 7 belongs there. According to what he did and the way he did this and how careful he was and he had the... the the, the understanding of Greek grammar to know that it had to be there, but he wanted textual support. I want to see it in a Greek manuscript. I know it belongs there. The church fathers quoted it. I know it, I know it's supposed to be here, but I don't have a text that, that puts it there. And he patiently waited, and he, he, he ended up with two texts that proved to him it belonged there, and so he added it. And so th that's the difference. When you got guys like Westcott and Hort, who are devising a scheme to, to, to encourage you to doubt the Word of God. And then you have men who just honestly and objectively, okay, let's see where this goes. And then through, through a very honest process, they end up in the end proving that the Word of God is correct. And, and, and that's, that's the difference. And um, intellectual honesty is greatly missing in the world today. People are afraid to, give, to, to, to be intellectually honest because in some sense you're giving up ground. But if it's right to give that ground up, you need to do it. That's part of being honest. If somebody who, who is a complete devil says something that's right, you need to admit what you said was correct. I can be honest about that. Now let's move forward and let me give you the truth based on that. But if you lie about that, you confirm in that person's mind that that even people who claim to belong to God are going to lie and don't tell the truth. And so what's the point? But when you display to them, you're, you're correct about that. But let's look at this now based on that. And, and, you, and you're honest with them about an assertion they made or something they said. In their mind, it puts them at ease because they know you're not just there to attack them. And, and you will allow them to, to have their say. That allows the conversation to move back and forth. 
When you just try to dominate and, and, and you know, the modern, the modern tactic and idea is you shut people down. You don't, you don't have a conversation. You try to dominate them. Well, that's, that's not what Jesus did. That's not what the apostles did. That's not what we've been taught to do. We, we, God himself tells unbelievers, come reason with me. Let's reason together, saith the Lord. Let's, let's talk about this. Now, if God can do that, we should be willing to do that. And, and the reason so much trouble exists politically and in the world of Christianity is because, first of all, people don't know what they're talking about, and they're dogmatic about something they don't have a clue about. <laughs> and they're unwilling to be intellectually honest. And so then nobody, the, the conversation stops, and it just turns into a, to a head, you know, people beating their heads together. So... Now, these men claim their purpose is to identify the original reading of the Bible. That's a, that's a common term in textual criticism. What's the original reading? We have to find the original reading. And so what they're saying is they know that the text they have departed from its original, you know, the, what, what it said originally. And so their, their, their supposed aim is to try and determine which text, text is the original and which one actually departed. And somehow they always land on the one that departed. <laughs> and they rarely ever land on the one that, that can be historically demonstrated to never have departed from its, original, from its original state. And what makes it even worse is they love men like Jerome. They love Westcott and Hort. And they read their writings. And in their writings, they tell you, I changed this verse. <laughs> it's like you're... You're over here saying, I'm a textual critic, and I'm trying to determine if this Alexandrian text is actually the Word of God. Oh, I love Jerome's book, and I love when he's talking about how this verse shouldn't be there, so I deleted it. Like, Do you not see the problem here? You can't claim over here to be looking for the, the, the original reading, and then read the person who had that text, and read about how he deleted things, and added things, and changed things. He told you, I changed the original reading. So then you know the text that I have that came from Alexandria or the Western text or the Caesarean text, anything related to Egypt in that direction, you know it was changed. And they tell you openly, we changed it. And yet these intellectuals are like, we have to determine, where, where's the original reading? <laughs> well, it's not over there. <laughs> and, and so the battle continues. Um, the, go the goal is to find the most ancient and most accurate reading, whatever that is. The problem is ancient. ancient doesn't mean accurate, and accurate can be subjective. So if you already have an opinion about a certain text, and you set out to prove your opinion, that's, that's, that's very subjective. That is not an objective endeavor where you're going out and trying to prove with factual information what this text is, where it came from, why it exists. Instead, I have an idea, and if I find any data that doesn't support my idea, I'm going to make it disappear. And I'm only going to look at the data that supports my idea. And that's what these men do. And they do it religiously, but they accuse us of being religious fanatics. No, you are the religious fanatics. We, we, I mean, we have solid foundation to stand on for what we believe. You don't. But they hide it all under this, under the idea of intellectualism and, you know, being academic. The collating process of textual criticism has been scrutinized over time. Earlier scholars did not see the value of collation, so they did not take care to note 
every variance between texts. They didn't give it this attention to uh, see if there was any, any change in the text or in the document. They just kind of threw them all, to, all together. In the 19th century, this began to be taken far more seriously, and the manuscripts were examined far more carefully. The most notable of these collators in the 19th century were his name again, Tischendorf. There's a C there, C-H. Tischendorf. Tragellas. They all have to have really cool names. Scrivener. And then our, our friend. I'll write his whole name. Dean John... W. Virgin. Now these two, Scrivener, 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 however you say his name, and Virgin, uh, were essentially, were closely related, essentially on the same page. And so were these two, Tischendorf and Tregellas. They were, they were not honest characters. All right, so now, so we've talked about how you, you have these manuscripts. Some are papyri, some are vellum. Uh, then, then you have, you know, uh, shards of pots and, and anything people can write, write the Word of God on and, and keep a copy of. Then you have lectionaries throughout history. And then we go from all of that to versions. Who can guess what a version is? Not everybody at once. Calm down. So essentially, a version is a translation. So basically, you have these versions that exist where they, where they took the Word of God from, from the Greek manuscripts that they could get their hands on, and they tried to translate it into different languages. Some notable uh, versions, the Old Latin Vulgate, the new Latin Vulgate. What's the difference between the two? The new Latin Vulgate is a corrupt, devilish attempt to replace the old Latin Vulgate. Now, the people loved the old Latin Vulgate, and they had a hard time getting them to give it up. Um, and, you know, the only people who bought into Jerome's new Latin Vulgate were the, the elite the intellectuals and the and the the pope and you know high level people the old latin vulgate is believed to have been translated from greek into latin in the 2nd century now think about that there was there was a translation of the word of god in the 2nd century that's a long time ago it was made in north africa Around 50 manuscripts of this New Testament have survived over the years, and they are divided into two groups. You have the African Latin. Did you know that your ancestors used to speak Latin? Can we go back there? <laughs> European Latin. 
Now, I don't know uh, how much difference there was between the two, uh, but those were the two groups of, of the Old Latin Vulgate. In 382 AD, here we go, here comes trouble. Pope Damascus requested that Jerome revise the Old Latin Vulgate. These people have been playing the same tricks and doing the same thing since the second century. It just, it never, it never ends. Um, And so by the time we get to the fourth century, Jerome compiled and produced what came to be known as the Latin Vulgate. Now, why would you call it that? If the Latin Vulgate already existed, why would you call it? Why does every new Bible call itself the Holy Bible? And why do they all say, every one of them say that this is a better version than the King James Version? Why does the NIV never say we have a better version than the ESV? And the ESV never says we have a better version than the New King James Version. They all say we have a better version than the King James Version. Why is that? The Word of God is always under attack. This became the official translation of the Roman Catholic Church. More than 8,000 of these still exist. The New Latin Vulgate. And the Catholic Church absolutely loves it. It is their baby. Though the Catholic Church is going so liberal that they rarely do church in Latin anymore, so it doesn't really help them. (laughs) It used to be they had very conservative uh, priests and cardinals and bishops, and and they demanded that the service be in Latin, and that was a sign of conservatism. And by the way, conservatism means you're conserving something. You're trying to keep something. Well, now they're ordaining women, and priests are getting married, and the Pope will probably have a wife soon. And I mean, they were already corrupt, but now... They're, they're so weak now that they're having to buy into the world's progressive, you know, woke doctrines in order to try and be relevant. And, um, and they're doing it. They're doing it quickly. As early as the fourth century, Rome is already trying to distort biblical truth. That's 382 A.D. Pope Damascus. All right, next we have the Syriac. Version. And we're not given a lot of details. We're going through this. I want you to be familiar with some of these ideas, but we're not given a lot of detail as to which version belonged to which text or which line of manuscript. Um, some of that is difficult to determine. These people were translating the Bible with whatever they could get their hands on. Uh, it's not like they had a store they could go to and purchase a copy of the Byzantine text and take it home and, and make a translation. They just had to, whatever they could get their hands on at the time. And many of these versions weren't, were not complete Bibles. They only had as much of the Bible as they could find or as much of the Bible as they could get their hands on. And uh, so the Syriac version is the most notable of the Syriac versions, and, and it is called the Peshitta. That'd be a good girl's name. Right? Monica? Monica Pashita. See? <laughs> this was the historic Bible of the entire Syrian church. 
Why, why might that be significant? The Word of God, the New Testament, compiled and assembled in Antioch, Syria. This was the historic Bible of the Syrian church. The church at Antioch, Syria, is one of the most notable churches in the New Testament. The Peshitta is regarded as one of the most ancient versions dating back to the second century. That's pretty good. So in the second century, they're translating a Bible from Greek to Syriac. In the second century. That's, I find that impressive. Now this makes sense considering this manuscript's connection to Antioch, its, its early nature. Some have tried to shift the date for this version to the 5th century, but the evidence for such has been lacking. So no, no credible scholar, whatever that means, believes it actually existed in the 5th century or came to exist in the 5th century. Um, all the evidence points to the 2nd century. Now, this next one. Somebody should really name their child this. The Philozenian version. The Philozenian Syriac version. Um, the Peshitta was missing five books of the New Testament. And again, I, I don't know if this was by choice or just by limitation of what they could get their hands on to, to make the translation. The Peshitta was missing 2 Peter, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, and Revelation. This version was produced in 508 A.D. Can you guess the, the, the man's name that produced it? Now you see this is going to add to the coolness of this name if you were to use it. This is his name and title. Philozenus of Maybug. Anybody? Anybody want to use that? He was Bishop of Maybug. It became known as the Philozenian Harclean version. This name just gets better and better. So Philozenian Harclean. Harclean version. And the man that produced it is actually an important man in Christian history. His name is Polycarp. Anybody know that name? Anybody know Polycarp? Is a common name in our circles, very closely related to the... Uh, anyways, uh, he's the man that produced it. And in 616, it was revised and reissued, there we go, by Thomas of... Harkle. You know, I'm, I'm just convinced we just don't put as much thought into our names anymore. <laughs> so Thomas of Harkle revised it. And when he did the revision, he was the Bishop of Maybug. <laughs> and so this is why it became known as the Philozenian Harclean. All right, the next one is the Old Syriac. Now remember, all, all these versions, going all the way back to the second century, help add more support for the fact that you have the ability to trace the lineage of your Bible. 
There's just so much evidence. It's insane. If anybody really wanted to look, look, they they could do that. Um, Now, this version is represented by two manuscripts, and they're not good. The Curtonian Syriac and the Sinaitic. This manuscript was discovered by Miss Lewis. Miss Lewis, Mrs. M R S Lewis in 1892. She found it in the same monastery where Tischendorf found Codex Aleph 50 years prior. So 50 years later, they're doing the exact same thing, making text, editing text, and then throw it in the trash because nobody wants to use it. <laughs> and here comes Miss Lewis. I'll take that. It worked for Tischendorf. Surely it'll work for me. This was given the name the Old Syriac due to the sudden debate over the age of the Peshitta. What was that debate? Anybody remember? The Peshitta, there was, a, there was some debate over when it, when, it start, when it came to exist. Second century versus fifth. Second century versus the fifth century, but there is no support for it to exist in the fifth century. All the historical support says the second century, so they called this one the Old Syriac. Again, if you have a Syriac version that exists, that is accurate, and that you could call the Word of God, we need to replace that. <laughs> so we're going to call ours the Old Syriac and suggest that it's older than the other one and probably therefore more accurate than the other one. You see the, the trick the devil is playing here? The, the game that he's playing? Um, again, the evidence is greatly lacking. It is most likely that the Peshitta is the older version. Either way, the Peshitta is most certainly the accurate version. So, again, we, you know, the age is important. We don't, we don't doubt the importance of age. But, that, but age doesn't mean accurate. And you've got to distinguish between those, and that's what their argument is. So, well, this one's older. <laughs> okay. Well, that doesn't mean it's correct. What, what if you have an NIV that's older than my King James Bible? It was printed before my King James Bible. It doesn't mean the NIV is suddenly now accurate because it's, you know, this Bible was printed in 1968. This Bible was printed in 2000. (laughs) That that doesn't say anything about the accuracy. And so that's, that's the game they play. They suggest that because it's older, it must be more accurate. Now we have Egyptian... Versions. I shouldn't have to name our child Philo Zenon. <laughs> I didn't mean to offend her. No. The Egyptian versions were written in the Coptic language. This is important to understand. The Egyptians were the Coptic people before Muhammad. invaded Egypt, or at least his people, his, his followers. When they invaded Egypt, they, 
They destroyed the, the library that was in Alexandria, which that might have been a good thing. <laughs> that, that probably saved the world a lot of trouble. That, that was one pagan and corrupt library. But they, they destroyed that library, and then they dominated Egypt. They, they, took, they took their land, they raped the women, and they forced them all to submit to, to Islam. And, and any child that was born automatically had to, had to be a Muslim. So by the time, you know, after a certain amount of time, the Coptic people no longer exist. Now Egyptians are almost, almost wholly Arab. When you see an Egyptian, they, 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 you can tell they're Arab, but they, they depart slightly because of their Coptic lineage. And so the church in Egypt, the, the, it, again, it's an Orthodox church like Roman Catholicism or Greek, Greek Orthodox, but it's called the Coptic church. Now, they don't speak the Coptic language. They don't, you know, they're not, they're Arab now. They're not Coptic, but that's what they call themselves in Egypt. So those were, you know, before Islam invaded uh, Egypt to rape and pillage the Egyptian people, uh, they were Coptic. They are now, they were not Arabic. All right, so the Coptic New Testament was in two dialects. So you had this Coptic New Testament, and it was written in two dialects, the uh, Sahidic, the Sahidic version, and the Bohiric. I'm sure I'm pronouncing those perfectly. All right, so those were the two dialects. Uh, the Sahidic was in the south, and the other, uh, obviously, was northern. And even now, the uh, Egyptians, the, the Egyptians who live in the south versus those who live in the north, are, are very different. Um, they call southern Egypt Upper Egypt, and it's called Upper Egypt because of its elevation. It, it goes up in elevation, whereas the closer you get to Cairo and, and the north, the, the closer you get to, once you get to Cairo and, and then even to Alexandria, you're, you're going down into the ocean, so it's like a continual downslope. That's one of the reasons the Nile River runs backwards. You, you know, it starts... At Lake Victoria, 3,000 feet above sea level, you know, another part of it starts in the mountains in, in uh, Ethiopia, and they come down and meet together, and it essentially flows downhill all the way to a, a city called Damietta. And Damietta, the Nile River and the, and the ocean meet together. It, the Nile River pours out into the ocean. And so it runs backwards because it's going downhill the other direction. So that's not going to be on your test. I just thought you'd like to know that. The Gothic version. This is a whole different... We, we left Egypt, now we're going to Germany. It was translated from Greek in the 4th century. It was transla translated... Now, here's, here's another cool name. Let me make sure I spell this right. A man named Olphilus. Olphilus. U-L-F-I-L-A-S. It's a good name, right? Yeah, okay. Bombali likes it. What, what time period are we talking about? 
fourth century, right? Now li listen to this. This is the fourth century, 400 years after Jesus, okay? Um, Ophilus was a missionary to the Gauls. God, the Gothic people. So it's called the Gothic version. And so G-O-T-H were the people, the Goths. This was a Germanic tribe in, in the area now known as Germany. The, the Goths were the Eastern Germanic tribes. So this was essentially East Germany in that day. This is what the German people were called before there was a Germany. They were Gothic, the Goths which is a hard word to say with an S on the end. Ophilus created a written language for the Gothic people so they could have God's word. Does that sound familiar? That's what missionaries have been doing all over the world for apparently since at least the 4th century. That's incredible. There are six Gothic manuscripts. They, many of them, or some of them have survived. I believe one of each six or some of each of the six have survived. All right, next we have the Armenian version. There are 1,244 of these extant. They were made in the 5th century. That's Pretty good evidence for the, for, for the existence of the Word of God. <laughs> Somehow, somebody made 1,244 copies of the same manuscript in the 5th century and called it a Bible. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. All right, we'll go through this next one uh, very quickly. That's all on versions. That's all we're going to look at in terms of versions. And... Um, and I, I hope you understand the relevance of, of these. I mean, when you've got versions of the Word of God that exist that were translated from Greek into different languages all over the world going as far back as the second century, does that not, does that not suggest to you that what we're doing is the right thing? <laughs> I mean, these people were translating the Word of God as far back as the second century and trying to get it into other languages. That, that's what God's people do. They, they want the Word of God published in every nation, just like, the Lord, just like the Lord said. All right, so now we have the church fathers. And I'm going to go through these quickly. The collective writings of the church fathers provide great evidence for the accuracy of our Bible. The most notable of the church fathers, all right, so now notable doesn't mean necessarily good. It just means they were important in church history. Look, Jerome, what he did to the Bible was horrible, but he's a very important figure in church history, and you need to be able to distinguish between the two, all right? So his, his importance doesn't mean that it was good, <laughs> And so uh, I would say Hitler is an important figure in world history, but it wasn't good. So, you know, you, you understand what I'm saying. So now, first we have the Western fathers. All right. Now, this is what the world has come to call them, the fathers. They're not my father. They're not your father. This is just what religious people do. They have to give them some stupid name and make it 
something more than it, than it ought to be. Um, the Western Fathers started with Irenaeus. And he was around, he was circa 180. Next we have Tertullian. These names sound familiar. We've talked about them. Circa 150 to 220. Cyprian. And he was 200 to 258. Now imagine this. As far back as 150, we have quotations from church fathers with portions of our Bible in it. Whether it be in Greek form or the Syriac form or you know, whatever language they were using, they had the Word of God. And, and, and the verses... Many of the verses that we argue with these people over, these men were writing about those verses as far back as 150. Yes, sir? Circa? It's a, it's, a, it's a term you use, it's a historical term used to define, you know, they're saying we don't know how long these people lived. It was circa, it was about this time. It was, it was around this, this period. So that we don't know the exact dates. They, they know for sure... They existed most likely in the dates they've suggested, but they don't know their full age or the year they were born, the year they died, and, and all that. So they'll say circa was around this time. All right, next are the Alexandrian fathers. And Alexandria finally got mad at me and didn't come back. I kept saying her name. First you have Clement of Alexandria. That makes sense. And he was circa 200. And next we have our good friend, the devil incarnate, Origen. These two men, Origen and Jerome, sometimes you see it written like this. These two men, early on, these are two church fathers that did much to destroy faith in the Word of God. Now, that wasn't their intent. I believe it was Westcott and Hort's intent. They were trying to damage the King James Bible. These men were just, they were lost men who were extremely religious, they were philosophers. And Christians, whatever, whatever that meant to them at the same time. And so to them, you don't really believe the Bible. It's, it's, just, a, it's just a good system of morality and, and it's all full of allegories and things that you don't really, you don't really believe really happened. They're just they're stories that can help us. There's a man, I believe I mentioned his name because um, I talk about this a little bit somewhere in, in my notes. There's a man that alive today, a brilliant man named Jordan Peterson. Anybody know him? He was recently made famous in Canada. Um, Canada implemented a new law that says if, if a man comes in and tells you 
these are my pronouns. You're going to call me, and the pronouns are so stupid now that they've come up with, but, but he's a man. You're, he says, you're going to call me she and her. That's how you're going to address me. And in Canada, if you don't obey his command, it's punishable by law now. Well, Jordan Peterson fought that law, and it made him famous, and it was hilarious to watch. Because you have these you know, parliament members trying to debate Jordan Peterson, who is an unbelievably brilliant and an unbelievably well-spoken man. And he's, he's, he's incredible. He's, you have people, he's, he, he's basically a modern-day Erasmus. He's going to go down in history as one of the greatest minds of our time. Now, here's the problem. He's a clinical and research psychologist. He's also a philosopher. He also teaches the Bible. Now, what do you think is going to happen if you put those three ideologies together? Is this man teaching the Word of God? No. But this man is nigh unto the kingdom of heaven. It really seems, if you watch his videos and you listen to him talk, it seems like God is breaking him down. The question is, will he submit? Thus far, he hasn't. And so, because of that, like these two men, he is very dangerous. Because he's so articulate, he's so intelligent, he's got this brilliant mind, he speaks well of Christianity, he says nice things about God, he even has whole biblical series teaching the Bible. None of it is true. (laughs) But if you listen to it, it sounds so good, and he's so good at it, he's a great teacher. He's dangerous. Because in a world today where being a man, now you don't see it, it's coming to Uganda. I'm seeing traces of it in Uganda. But in the Western world, if you're a white man or a man, period, the whole world is attacking you. If you're white, they tell you you need to apologize for being white. Now, we we used to call that racism. (laughs) Now they call it white privilege. And they, they, they change the terms. And if you're, if you're a male and you're, and you're competing in a job against a female, well, you should just walk away and let the female have it. It doesn't matter who's qualified. It doesn't matter who's worked harder for it. It doesn't matter who should get the job. Well, she's a female. You should give her the job. And we used to call that sexism. You know, they used to have these policies in businesses where they would say, you can't discriminate on the basis of race, sex, or religion. <laughs> And, that's, and now they've made it legal to do that as long as you're doing it to certain people. Me. <laughs> I'm a male white Christian. That means, according to their doctrine, I am the absolute scum of society. I'm at the, I'm at the bottom, and, and I, should, I should basically go hide in a hole and never show my face again. Now, that's, what, that's the direction Western society has gone. This man does much to fight that. And so what's happening, happening is... Young men who have been displaced because the world is attacking them, they're fleeing to this man to learn what it means and how to, how to deal with what it, what it means to be a man and how to deal with life. 
And he's doing a pretty good job of teaching them. The problem is he's misleading all of them and stealing them away from the Word of God. He doesn't know he's doing that. He doesn't mean to do that. Just like, I don't think these men meant to do it. I do think Westcott and Hort meant to do it. I don't think Origen meant to do it. I don't think Jerome meant to do it. And I don't think Jordan Peterson means to do it. But that's exactly what they're doing. They're very dangerous. And if you don't know what they're saying and you can't listen to them carefully, you should stay away from it. Because they're going to convince you. So he, he has this, this, an entire series of teachings on archetypal um, it's called archetypal stories. This is not in your notes. You don't need to write this down unless you're just interested in it. But what he, what he says is when, 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 when a psychologist or a research scientist talks about the Bible as myth, they're not trying to be disrespectful. In, in, in the world of psychology and, and in the world of uh, uh, philosophy, a myth is, is an ancient story that, that has so much power to it, they can't explain it. And so they say that the Bible is full of archetypal stories. That what they're trying to tell you is that the myth in the Bible has, has so much power to it, they, they have seen historically that it alters lives, and it alters lives in a good way. But as, a, as an atheist, they don't want to admit that it's probably God who did that through his word, but they are willing to be honest enough to say, there is something to this book, we just don't know what it is. We won't admit what it is. <laughs> We're not ready to say it's God, but, but there is something to the words in this book. And so, so these men are dangerous because they get their hands on the Word of God. And then they start teaching people the Bible, which in turn ends up misleading you and taking you off in the wrong direction. Now, before the break, let's get the next one. Um, Antioch and Asia Minor. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.